I don't know about you, but at 16 years old, I was begging my parents to drive their car after I got my learner's permit. I remember complaining my mom was being such a drag because I wanted to drive to the mall one day and she wouldn't let me. I mean, in retrospect, it was kind of a petty thing to complain about. After all, I wasn't exactly in a dire situation. My parents gave me food, shelter, and the occasional vacation abroad. I had this realization for the first time in my life ever, like your life is now in your hands and your hands only. And it's up to you to do something about that. So when I, I tell people all the time, like my parents passing was one of the best things that ever happened to me because uh, I say that with all due respect, because before then I didn't take life seriously. You know, I was, I was getting bad, I was getting in trouble. But at that point, I never forget that moment. That's when life became real to me at 16 years old. That's Carter. And as you can tell, his life at 16 was, well, a bit different than mine. Instead of worrying about going to the mall, he was more concerned about where he was going to live, how to pay for college with no financial help from his parents, and the biggest one of all is grieving them who died within two years of each other. Well, he did have someone to turn to. Its name was Google. And conducting internet searches literally helped Carter break the cycle. Welcome to Beyond the Dollar with me, Sarah Lee Kane, a show where we have deep and honest conversations about how money affects our well-being. Carter Colefield, an account and financial advisor for creatives, comes on the show to talk about how his parents' death when he was 16 lit a fire under him to get a better handle on his money and ultimately his life. He chats about growing up in a dangerous neighborhood, south side of Chicago to be exact, why he's so thankful for his aunt for stepping up when his parents died, and what he did to get to a point of financial stability. Before we start, I want you to know that there are no cut and dry answers when it comes to money management. That's why it's important for you to dial in on your values and use that as your guide. I have a free values-based spending guide that walks you through some juicy questions and how you can start using them to allocate your money. To grab it, head over to beyondthedollar.co slash values. All right, get ready, grab a seat, and let's go Beyond the Dollar. Carter, welcome to the show. I am so excited you're on today. Walk me through how did you grow up? So I grew up on the south side of Chicago in a pretty impoverished neighborhood. It was nine of us in a three-bedroom home. So growing up, money wasn't abundant. It wasn't around much. But we you know we made things work. We had a roof over our head. We had food. So we were happy with that. But we weren't allowed to talk about money. We didn't have money conversations at the table. It was just like, yo, you got food, you got clothes. Be happy. And we actually were. So that's how I grew up. And I didn't really know much about money because all I knew was we had enough to get by, but not enough to do much more than that. Tell me more about what you mean by that. Like you had enough for food, obviously, and and shelter. But what do you mean nothing more than that? So like hand-me-down clothes. I had an older cousin. It was like my brother. So when he got done wearing his clothes, I had to wear his clothes. And we didn't really get allowance. It was like clean up, do your job. But you get extra money when extra money is here. And it built this, I don't want to say this thought process that like, not that we weren't deserving of money, but when I would get large lump sums of money, which was like $20, I would hurry up and spend it because I thought someone was going to take it away from me Like if I didn't hurry up and spend it. So it built this negative relationship with money growing up because I just wasn't used to having it. Just to clarify, so nine of you, is that your parents and your siblings or were there other family members that were living with you at the time? Me, my mom, my aunt, grandmother, sister, cousin, 
other cousin, her daughter. I think I'm missing one person. But we also had a dog. So yeah, it was a pretty big family dynamic. The only person that didn't live with me was my dad because he lived with his um, other wife at the time. So yeah, it was a pretty packed house, but it was fun. Like, I really enjoyed it. It's never a dull moment. So in terms of the extra money, was that from your mom or from your dad or was it like you had a job at the time? I didn't get a job until I was about 14, 15 years old. So funny story. We would get allowance every like $10, $20 here. But my auntie used to work as a construction worker. So she used to have all these coins in her car because she used to have to go through toes. So when I needed extra money, I would just like sneak in her car and grab a whole bunch of quarters. And actually, when I was a kid, I had a nickname of Scent because people could hear me walking down the street because I had all these coins rattling in my pocket. It's like the little bells you get on the little kitties' collars. Like you can hear the cat coming, but you, it's like the jangling coins kind of walking down the street. Exactly, exactly. She knew what I was doing. But yeah, so like, you know, the only time we would have extra money is like when I would do like side gigs around the neighborhood. I would shovel snow in the winter. I would mow lawns in the summer to get some extra money. And then I would also contribute to the house. So it was an interesting dynamic. It taught me how to work a little bit harder and I learned how to survive without much. Would you say your neighborhood, just to give perspective to those who aren't familiar with where you grew up, was it a affluent area or was it an area that wasn't very supportive, I guess, in terms of like a community? I'll be candid. Chicago is known for gang, drug violence, things like that. So the only way to usually get money as a teenager was to go to your local drug dealer and help him sell drugs or whatever, or to steal. So it was a very impoverished neighborhood. It's the south side of Chicago. It has the highest crime rates. It's tough in that sense. But my family, they didn't let me get into that stuff. I'm my older cousin, who's a big role model. He didn't get into that, so I didn't get into it either. So it wasn't really many positive role models in the neighborhood. In terms of growing up, like you said, it was rough and there's a lot of gangs, but was there anybody that you would consider a role model that really helped you to see more for yourself? Sarah, I'm a firm believer in that you cannot be what you cannot see. My older cousin who lived with us was, again, like a brother to me. He was an artist. He was really good at drawing. He had a contract with Nike for helping them draw shoe concepts. So he was a hustler. I remember he didn't eat lunch for a month at school because he took the $2 a day that he got and drank water during lunch just so he can buy a pair of sneakers he really wanted. So he really was the role model growing up showing me like you don't have to default to negative or illegal acts to make some money. You just have to be smart and leverage your skills. So like I only did what he did. And that got me to a point of college where I got around other role models at that point. But he was the main role model growing up. Obviously, there are a couple of major events that happened between your childhood and when you went to college. So let's cover that because that obviously has a huge effect on your life. Tell me when you moved out of that neighborhood and with your father. I was, I wouldn't say troublesome. I was just a very hyper kid and I would get in trouble a lot because I would do stupid things. When I was about 14 years old, my mom, my auntie, they said, hey, you can't live with us anymore. You need to go live with your father because he's going to make sure he disciplines you. So I lived with my father from the ages, I think, 14 to about 16. And in my freshman year of high school, my mom passed away from high blood pressure and stroke. It was very, very devastating because I love my mother to death. But I was already living with my father. So obviously that was tragic, but I still had my father to hang on to. Me and my father were building this amazing relationship because I lived with him. Then two years later, I was at school. My sister came and got me and told me that dad died. I'm like, what? Like, this is within two years. And I'm sitting here, you know, the 16 year old kid with no parents. I just remember sitting there and I don't know, I had this realization for the first time in my life ever. Like, 
your life is now in your hands and your hands only. And it's up to you to do something about that. When I, I tell people all the time, like my parents passing was one of the best things that ever happened to me because uh, and I say that with all due respect, because before then I didn't take life seriously. You know, I was, I was getting bad. I was getting in trouble. But at that point, I never forget that moment. That's when life became real to me at 16 years old. And honestly, like looking back, I feel like it gave me a supreme advantage over my peers because at 16, I had to become a full adult. And most people don't become adults to 18 or 21. So I had a two to five to year head start on most people. Where did you live? We moved back with my aunt, but now it was a less income. We probably lived in that house for another six months and then we lost the house. So we had to live in a hotel for about four to six months before my aunt took a new house for all of us. She was now responsible for all of her kids, but now her sister's kids who both her parents had died. It was a lot for her to take on. Was she considered your legal guardian or I'm not sure how laws work is like if if you're 16 and you're orphaned like you were, are you then considered your own adult? How does that work? So my sister was 20. I think she was then my legal guardian, but then again, she was in school. So my auntie just took the responsibility of taking on everybody. So her two kids who also had kids plus us, I just can't thank her enough for taking that step and taking on all that responsibility because I know it had to be trying on her at the time. I mean, dealing with deaths and then losing the house and all that, that's a lot (laughs) in itself. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then having to take on the responsibility. She was a role model in the sense as well. She really solidified the home until we were able to get on our feet and take charge on things. We'll get back to that because I really am excited to dive more into that. Before that, I want to talk about your parents' legacy in terms of their finances. Did they leave you and your sister anything? What was that whole process like? My mom didn't. I don't think she had any life insurance or anything in place. At least I didn't get any or see any. Maybe it was like to cover the cost of like funerals. But my dad left me and my sister and my stepbrother. His life insurance policy and death and everything, it was like $6,000 a piece. So it could have been that big of a policy. But for me, that's the more money than I ever seen. So I immediately, because I was 16 years old, I put it in a five-year CD. It's like I, I read this literally on Google because I didn't know what to do with the money. And I didn't want to touch it until I got out of college. So I put in like a five-year CD and I just kept it there. And I didn't touch that money until I graduated from college. And that was probably one of the smarter things that I ever did. That's awesome. First of all, you went to Google and you just were like, what do I do with this money? <laughs> but, I mean, if you think about it, you could have spent it somewhere else, right? The, the fact that you chose to go online and find out what you can do with it instead of spending it all, that that really is a testament to your 16-year-old self, especially going through your father's death after your mom's death within the span of two years. That's a lot to deal with. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it came down to that money mindset I had, right? It's like, even when I get large sums of money, I don't think it belongs to me. So I either have to spend it or get rid of it before someone comes and takes it. <laughs> and, I, and so again, yeah, I just put it in the CD because I knew that at least Google told me that was a safe place for it to go. And when I graduated from college with the financial acumen, I was so happy that I did that because then I knew exactly what to do with the money and how to make it work for me. Yeah, that's amazing. So going back to your aunt, at this point, she's raising you and all these other children and your sister, obviously, she's supporting her in different capacities. I am curious about what was going through your mind or how did you deal with the emotional grief that was happening while still being able to study and pass your SATs and kind of figure out where you wanted to go to college? Ironically enough, it turned into drive. I don't know if It was the healthiest thing, but the depression, the worry, I just used it as fuel. It wasn't really sad moments for me. Like when I was 
upset, I just wouldn't grab the book. I got lost in studies because that was the only way I could take my mind off things. So I channeled that energy and put it into school and put it into books, put it into learning. And I got really smart really fast because whenever I would get sad, I would just pick up a book to take my mind off things. Like when my dad died, the first thing I did was pick up my ACT book and start studying. I remember to this day, it was tears on the pages, but that was the only thing I could do, take my mind off of everything. What did you decide to study in college and why? <laughs> so funny story. I was always really good at math. I was always really good at numbers to the point where I was doing my sister's homework, who was four years older than me. And so I graduated high school around the time of the recession. So around 08, 09. And I just remember everybody being unemployed, like gas prices being $5 a gallon. So before I went to college and like when my guidance counselor asked me what I want to major in, I then went back to Google and said, what's the job with the lowest unemployment rate? And then CPA was number one. So I was like, that's what I'm going to college for. I kid you not, U of I had one of the top accounting programs. So I picked the school and by the grace of God, got in and that was all she wrote. What? I'm sensing a theme here with Google. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I'm so serious. Like I, I had nobody else to go to. So Google was my mentor in a sense. If I had a question, I just went there and it gave me that answer. And I, I didn't question. I never looked back. Did you look at the first result on Google or did you kind of click around? I don't even know if I click even when they give you that first page of Google, I think CPA came up like two or three times in a row. And I was like, all right, well, that's it. I don't want to deal with what everybody around me is going through with loss of jobs, loss of employment. It had to do with numbers. So I was like, this is what my calling is. And to this day, it kind of fits still what I do to this moment. It just kind of all worked out. Google was your mentor. So tell me about how you pay for college. First of all, I was a first generation college student, so I had nobody to go to to ask questions about college. So I really leveraged, obviously, the internet, but we had a guidance counselor in, in my senior year of high school. And she was like, look, I understand your financial situation. If you want to go to this university, which is very expensive, you're going to need scholarships. So I probably filled out close to 100 scholarships my senior year. And I ended up getting about 20 or so thousand dollars in scholarships. Then applying for colleges with no parents, you get a lot of grants and stuff like that, map grants, stuff like that. So I ended up going to college for virtually free. When I did my master's program, which was $40,000 alone, I got a minority scholarship by my university, which paid for my entire master's program and gave me a thousand dollar monthly stipend. So college was basically paid for. And I don't know how it happened, but I was so grateful. Well, I know how it happened. You asked the right people and you applied for it, right? I mean, that's how it happened. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the spirit. But like, you know, it's still crazy looking back. Like, I got through $140,000 worth of college with no debt. Like, yeah, that was pretty good. Let's fast forward to today. What motivates you in terms of money? Freedom. I worked in uh, corporate America for a bit. I worked at one of the biggest accounting firms in the world. And I thought that that was going to make me happy. You know, I made more money starting out than my parents made, period. Then there was a place of, I had money, but I didn't have freedom because I had to go to work and I wasn't happy. So I started doing a lot of reading and I read books like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which is one of the best books I've ever read when it comes to money, Think and Grow Rich. And these books talked about money, but using it as a tool for your own freedom. That really shifted my mind to entrepreneurship and starting my own business. For me, money is a tool of freedom. Money allows me to have options. Money doesn't bring me happiness, but it brings me options to therefore find happiness. How do you view money and freedom in terms of breaking the cycle? Great question, Sarah. So for me, the way to break the cycle, it starts 100% with a mindset, right? So when I was a kid, I had a very scarcity 
mindset when it came to money. I didn't believe there was enough money to go around. I didn't believe that I deserved money. I believed that money was such a finite object, but it took me a lot of reading and a lot of studying. And again, leveraging Google, I found this one statistic that if you separated all the money in the world to everybody over 18 with the US GDP, everybody would have about $80,000 a piece. So there's enough money to literally go around for everybody. And it really helped me understand money is not this finite, scarce thing that we want so bad. It's actually more than enough money to go around. All we have to do is one, adopt that abundance mindset when it comes to money. Then therefore we can start making the proper decisions and the proper actions to attain it. So what are some of the mindset things that you are working on now or have been working on to help you continue to cultivate this abundance mindset? Great question. One, again, it starts with the mindset of knowing that it's enough money to go around. Number two is understanding that to order to have abundance of money, you need it to be coming from multiple places. So I started looking into how can I build multiple streams of income so I don't just rely on one piece of income. And I think thirdly, which is one of the most important things, the quickest way to build an abundance mindset around money is to give. And every time I tell this to people, they look at me crazy. Like, you mean to tell me giving away my money is going to give me this mindset that's putting to go around? It's like, absolutely. If you begin to give away money, and I always use this analogy, if you have $100 in your hand and you're clenching it really tight and I say, hey, Sarah, I want to give you 500 more, but in order to do that, you have to open your hand and release the current money you have in your hand to get the rest of the money. That analogy really helps people understand like, you have to find ways to give and contribute to others. That's going to build this abundance mindset around money. I love that. That's a great, great analogy. As we wrap up this conversation, I want to go back to the idea of legacy and I want to go back to your parents. So we had talked about earlier about their financial legacy in terms of what money did they leave you. Now I'm really interested in their legacy in terms of the non-financial sense. What lessons did they impart on you? They taught me what I don't want to do. And with all due respect, right? Because I think one of the biggest issues we had in our household around money was that we weren't allowed to have conversations around it. So we didn't know what we didn't know. I felt like that came from a place of embarrassment. Because if you're a parent and you can't answer your child's questions around money, you don't want to talk about it. It just helped me understand, like when I have kids, when I start a family, we're going to have mandatory money conversations at the dinner table all the time. Because I want my kids and my family to understand that one, it's okay to talk about money, but also it's also okay to learn about it. And it's okay to ask questions about things you don't know. I feel like that was the biggest thing that held our household back is that we didn't know and we weren't allowed to ask and therefore we never learned. And that constituted this negative relationship, which I don't want to have. So they taught me a lot of things that by accident that, that they did that I don't want to do because I know that's going to have on my kids and future generations. What do you hope your legacy to be? Whew. So I hope I teach my kids a few things. One, that money is a tool and it's abundant and it's plenty to go around. On top of that, money is not the main goal in life. And that if you solve the money problem early, and what I mean by that, if you find out how to make yourself financially stable early, you get to spend the rest of your life figuring out what you want to do that makes you happy. Because I feel like so many people get caught in the cycle of working for money and then spending it on things because they're not happy. But if you can break the cycle and learn how to make money work for you early, you can spend the rest of your life finding out what makes you happy. And that's the major piece of legacy I want to leave. Oh, awesome. Love it. Carter, thank you so much for coming on Beyond the Dollar. Thank you so much, Sarah. Have a great day. You can find Carter at coalfieldsconcepts.com. 
or on Instagram at underscore coldfieldadvisor. Coming up next, I'm going to distill my conversation with Carter, including how you can use Google as your ally. Hey, everyone, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Carter. That whole thing with Google was just like so amazing and I love it. And I hope that you enjoyed that part of the conversation as well. Before we get to that point, I want to talk about the concept of a role model or someone that you can look up to or aspire to be or someone that helps you see that there are more options than what is currently in your environment. If you listen to the interview that I had with Hazel Ortega, she grew up in a fairly similar situation, but in LA, she had role models as well, right? She had parents who told her that they loved her. She had a mentor who helped her professionally to really help her see that, hey, maybe I should get my GED. I should get a job, you know, all those things. And so for Carter, that was his cousin. In a very roundabout way, that was his parents who taught him what not to do. And so what these two stories are really showing me, at least, is that finding a role model or finding someone to aspire to be is is a really effective way in breaking the cycle, whatever that means to you. So maybe you're trying to get out of debt. It could just mean reading a book. It could mean looking at the debt-free Instagram. I think there's a hashtag with that. I'll leave that in the show notes where you can see people who paid off their debt and the ways they did it and hopefully get some inspiration and motivation from that, that you too can be debt-free. Or maybe you are in a situation where you're trying to get scholarships for your master's degree and you can't afford it, right? So Carter had a guidance counselor. He also, again, turned to Google, who he considered one of his mentors, which again, I think is amazing, in order to figure out what he needed to do to help him pay for school. So speaking about Google, so those two instances where Carter talked about, hey, I Googled when my parents died and I got this life insurance policy, what should I do with it? As well as Googling what career has the lowest unemployment rate. Those are some pretty great ways to figure out things that you don't know. And so in terms of Google is you want to be really mindful of some of the questions that you want to be able to ask. And that's not to say you have to be like super insightful and ask these amazing questions, or you can start with really basic ones and then go from there. So for Carter, he just said, what do I do with this $6,000? He put it into a CD. And then when he knew better, when he knew more, he put it in a different way. So that's really how you can go about it. The internet is like this crazy treasure trove of ideas and concepts and things. So many things that you can learn, right? In theory, So why not take advantage of it? All you really need is an internet connection and a device. So maybe your phone, maybe you're listening to your phone right now, a laptop. If you can get access to internet at your library, that is another great resource that you can do. So just go and search happily. Third thing I want to talk about is the idea of using sadness and anger in a productive way. Now, Caveat here is I don't want to romanticize the whole concept of adversity as a way to better your life. That's not really what I'm saying here. But I do want to say that for many of the stories that have occurred or that you've listened to on Beyond the Dollar, many of my guests have used adversity as a fuel to see that maybe they want something different. And so that in itself is a catalyst 
for change. So it's not really romanticizing it, but it's really almost a wake-up call. And if you think about when Carter's dad died when he was 16, that really was for him like a fuel to go, okay, well, now I'm an adult. I was messing around before that. I really need a man up because I am the only one I've got, essentially. For Hazel, for example, she wanted so badly to get out of her neighborhood, right? The guest in a previous episode. And so she made those changes. So think about if you are going through something you know, upsetting or some sort of adversity, or you're going through something that's really making you sad and angry, think of how you're going to use that to really shift the way you want to view a situation and how you want to do something differently. And so my final point really with Carter's interview is talking about the idea of money and happiness. And I love this. And it really blew my mind in terms of saying money doesn't really buy you happiness. Money can bring you the option to find happiness. So bettering your money situation, having more financial stability, whatever that looks like for you, gives you that option to look at life in a different way. Because if you're not worrying about how you're putting food on the table, you're not worrying about how you can make your mortgage payment, you can then focus in other ways. And I do want to make a point about giving away money. I think this is a very hot button topic. And I want to clarify is that you don't have to give away money to get more money. It's more about the energy, the time and energy that you are giving to better the world. And if you are someone who is very entrepreneurial, you may find that as you're helping others, that that's coming back to you maybe in the form of other connections or gigs, right? Maybe you are trying to get a promotion at your job and maybe helping other team members or colleagues at your company has really helped you to get that promotion. For me, I do donate money, but I also give my time to causes and to the community at large. So something that I am doing for 2021 is to volunteer with VITA, which stands for Volunteer Income Tax Assistance. So in the US, the IRS has set up this program for volunteers to help those who cannot afford to pay someone to prepare their taxes to be able to do so. So that I am going to be volunteering to help people to prepare their taxes. And it's just really one way for me to use what I know and the time that I have to better my community. All right. So I hope you enjoyed that episode. Next week's episode is also just as juicy. I hope you stick around for next week's. I have bringing on a married couple, so Brian Davis Gant and Mark Gant, to talk about both their individual addictions. So Brianne was addicted to love and Mark was addicted to alcohol and drugs, a number of things. And so when they came together in their relationship, how that really played a role. And then the finances, like what was going on with their money. So I cannot wait for you to listen to that. Again, thank you so much for listening to Beyond the Dollar. If you like this episode, please share with a friend. It will help us share the mission of what we're doing around here, which is to have more deep and honest conversations about how money affects your well-being. All right, everyone. Until next time, keep living beyond the dollar. Beyond the Dollar.